You're listening to Matt Walsh on demand. Welcome. Hope you had a joyous Easter. Um, you know, I, as I've grown older, I've, I've come to appreciate Easter more than I used to. And I've always known that, uh, religiously speaking, it's, it's the highest holiday. You know, it's the, the greatest holiday, the holiest of holidays, the holiday that's central to our faith. But, but when you're a kid, it's really, well, it's the Easter Bunny versus Santa Claus. And the Easter Bunny doesn't stand a chance in that contest, does he? I mean... I I was never really down with the Easter Bunny when I was a kid. I'm sort of borderline on Santa Claus now, but at least the dude has a fleshed out backstory. You know, he has a he has a wife, he has a personality. I know where he lives, where he operates. I know his method of transportation. I understand his motivations and the myth and the tradition behind all of that. It bears at least some slight. Really slight, but some slight relevance to the holiday associated with him, right? Now, the Easter Bunny, on the other hand, I mean, what what the hell? I, a giant mutant rabbit who shows up on Easter, hides some candy in the living room, then disappears. That's And where does he go? What is he exactly? What What is his interest in Easter? Where does he get the candy? Does he buy it in bulk at BJ's or does he make it himself? Is he magic, magical, or is he just uh, technologically advanced? I don't know. Or is he possessed? Maybe he's from another planet. Um, are there more of his kind? Is, this a, is it the same Easter bunny that shows up every single year, or is this a species? Does he have any relation to Bigfoot? These are all questions that I haven't, even as a kid, they were never answered. And more importantly, what in the world does he have to do with Jesus Christ rising from the dead to redeem mankind? And okay... Uh, b- before some snarky know-it-all chimes in and says, well, you know, the, the history of Easter is that the pagans were blah, blah, blah. Yes, I, I actually know where the whole bunny and egg thing comes from. Uh, they are symbols of fertility, commonly used by ancient cultures in their spring celebrations. Christianity being the world's first truly universal religion. And still to this day, the world's only truly universal religion adopted some of the symbology to communicate its message to uh, to pagans. Because the pagans were, after all, um, correct in some ways, um, just in the, in the sense that the pagans respected and revered fertility, okay? They were wrong to deify it, but they revered fertility, for instance. And they were wrong to, you know, a lot of the pagan temples you would go, they were essentially brothels. You would go and you would have these big orgies with these priestesses, and they were wrong about all that. Um, however, of course, in, in our culture today, we're a different kind of pagan. And rather than revering fertility, we are revering infertility and impotence. And, and in fact, choosing sometimes to, to, to be that way. So I think actually the, the ancient pagans had one up on us in that department. But the point is they did pick up on the spiritual significance of the death and rebirth cycle present in the natural order. But they lacked the... Um, the fullness of truth to understand it. So the Christians came in and um, used some of these symbols and concepts to communicate the message because it is all consistent. 
nature is that the nature around us reflects, in some ways, the nature of God because it is from God. So that's what's interesting is that the, the pagans realized this. They just didn't have, they weren't able to put it all together because, because they, they didn't have the fullness of truth and they didn't have the gospel. So that's why when people come and say, well, you know, the Easter egg is actually pagan. Even if that's historically correct, so what? Who cares? It's not pagan anymore. Nobody's worshiping an egg anymore. But if this is a method by which Christians a long time ago taught pagans Christianity, well, it obviously worked, didn't it? So I don't understand the criticism. Anyway, uh, in any event, this is all rather complex for children. So despite the anthropology of it all, the Easter Bunny, for all intents and purposes, is just a big random freak. And given that Easter is the most significant holiday in the Christian calendar, I think that, you know, with my kids, I'll forgo the opportunity to obfuscate its meaning by introducing a demonic bunny sorcerer into the fold. You know, that's, that's sort of where I stand on that. Um, all right, a couple of things. First, Rand Paul jumped into the race this week. Uh, not much of a surprise. And here's how I feel about Rand, okay? And I say Rand because I know him. I know him personally. Well, I don't know him, but I did interview him probably nine or ten times when I, when I worked in Kentucky. And uh, I liked him because he answered the questions. Uh, he seemed real. Contrast that with my experience with, say, Mitch McConnell, who I also interviewed a few times when I worked in Kentucky. And you see that there is a difference. Now, I don't vote based on who I'd rather have a beer with. You know, that whole thing, because frankly, I don't think I'd like to have a beer with, with any of them. You look at any of the presidential candidates in a given year, most of the time, I wouldn't like to have a beer with any of them. Uh, with the exception of, I wouldn't mind sitting down with, say, Alan Keyes, maybe Pat Buchanan was he, when he was running. But for the most part, middle-aged D.C. politicians aren't really my crowd, I guess. But I do think it, it helps um, if you seem sincere. And it's even better to actually be sincere. And I think that Rand Paul is. I mean, if you want sincerity, look at Hillary Clinton and then imagine the exact opposite of that. Because Hillary is the least relatable, least sincere human being possibly to have ever been born of woman on this planet. She's like, she's like um, I imagine if, if uh, 500 years from now that they can make humanoid robots I think that would be Hillary Clinton. Everyone would sort of marvel at her and say, oh, it's so lifelike. But then we'd see the dead eyes and the vacant grin, and, and we'd realize that humans can never truly be replicated because they'd always be missing that one ingredient, which is a soul, which is the ingredient that I think the Clintons, uh, it seems like they miss anyway. And the crazy thing is that Hillary's enthusiastic supporters, all six of them, they, they want her to be this way. They want her to be sort of above us, elitist unrelatable i just read something and um it's an article about hillary's female supporters and how they don't want you to call her by her first name because you know how dare you speak to the queen in such a manner mere mortal here's a quote from the article that i was just reading it says uh i think it's pretty unjust said monica warrick on a recent visit to washington i think it shows the level of inequality that still exists in the workplace and just in general in society. Yes, inequality in the workplace is reflected by the fact that some people refer to Hillary Clinton as Hillary. Treating her like a person is to treat her unequally. That's how a lot of feminists see it. Um, anyway, so Rand Paul, uh, here, here's where I stand on him. He's got a lot going for him. 
I'll give them a chance. But but listen, Republicans are going to have to earn my vote, and I would encourage all conservatives or if you are a Republican, I'm not a registered Republican, by the way. I'm certainly not a registered Democrat, but I'm not a registered Republican. They have not earned me registering with them. So I, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to, going to watch um, this early stage of the primary campaign. And if somebody really earns my vote, I know I have to be registered Republican to vote in the primary. So then I will. I'll, I'll register Republican. But they have to earn that. And, I, and that's what I would encourage everyone is um, make them earn it. Because what I've, what I've long ago resolved to uh, never do is vote by default. I will never do that. Because I think people voting by default saying, ah, I, I really don't like this guy. There's nothing good about him, but I'll vote for him because he's better than the other person. People doing that, that's, what led, that's what's led us down this path where we've had so many utter disasters in office, whether, they're, whether you know, in the White House or in the Senate and Congress. Uh, it's this default mentality where we don't demand that our representatives actually earn our support and, and, and show that they themselves are actively um, the right choice for us. We don't demand that, and they know we don't demand it. So all they say is, okay, I have to seem at least not as bad as the person I'm running against. And that's all we get because that's all we ever demand. We have to demand more, which is what I'm going to do. Okay, um, something else that uh, crossed my desk here that I, I wanted to talk about. And I know I'm behind the times, but my kids, my kids aren't in public school and never will be. Um, so some of these things I'm, I'm just unaware of, some of the things that go on, even though I went to public school, but maybe I don't remember or things have changed. So there's an article on The Blaze about a girl um, by the name of Sydney Smoot, nine years old. Great name, by the way, Sydney Smoot. Uh, it should be kind of a, a you know precocious female character in maybe a sitcom or a cartoon show with a name like that. Great name. So Sydney Smoot gave a speech to her local school board down in Florida. And she's nine years old, Hernando County, County uh, Florida. And she's attacking standardized testing. And she's explaining what's wrong with it. But... And, and leave it to a nine-year-old girl to instruct these adults on, on these matters. But she says something that really jumps out at me. And, and she says that she's not allowed to even discuss the standardized, te- standardized tests with her parents. That's a rule. When she takes the standardized she's not allowed to go home and talk about the test she just took with her parents. So the whole thing is veiled in secrecy. And nobody's allowed to know what these kids were just tested on, even their parents. So I mentioned this on Facebook, and a, a bunch of other people wrote to confirm this um, with their own stories. Susan wrote, she says, Matt, not only are the kids forbidden from talking about the tests, but boards of education are also denied looking at the tests. These are the people who are in charge of standard standards and assessments, and they can't see the questions. It's insanity. That is insanity. Beverly said, as a teacher, I was told not to look at the actual test nor discuss it with anyone. If a student asked me a question about a test um, after the test was over and I answer it, I could lose my teaching certificate. Stupid. Yes. Stupid. Sherry said, my son just took a test a few weeks ago and he told me 
he couldn't tell me anything about it because it was against the law and that the teacher spent 30 minutes talking to them about it and that the FBI, the FBI would come if they talked about it. And she said that even she did not know what was on the test. This is sixth grade. I was dumbfounded. I mean, this is, this is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. This is nuts, okay? In case you didn't catch it the first six times. Just get your kids out of public school, people. Get them out because this is a disaster. And this is one thing that if I were to ever accept the public school system as an institution, which I don't because I don't think the government should be involved in education. I don't think a bureaucracy should come anywhere near education. But if I were to ever accept it, which I wouldn't, but if I, if I were, at a minimum, there would have to be complete, utter, total transparency for the parents in regards to what happens at the school. They should be able to know everything that is taught, everything that is tested on, everything that is said. They should be allowed to show up at the school anytime they want and walk into a classroom and observe. They should have access to everything, period. I mean, that's bare minimum. If we're going to talk about whether the public school system can coexist with any concept of uh, liberty in this country, then we've got to start at least with that, and we don't even have that. So, the, And these aren't just like little pop quizzes. Right. These are tests that are the now the cornerstone of a child's education. The most important thing that they'll do. Take the test. Everything is targeted towards this test. The test that they take is the culmination of all of their education is this test. And the parents aren't allowed to know about it. This is certainly one thing if there are any kids who happen to be listening to this for some reason. I would absolutely encourage you to disregard and disobey that rule. And if my kids did go to public school, I would tell them, disregard and disobey that rule. And it's unfortunate because when, when you put your kids um, under the care of other adults, which we all do, you know, even, even if you're not, if your kids aren't in public school, we all probably do that sometimes. You know, you leave them with... Uh, with their grandparents uh, uh, for a night or you have a babysitter or a coach or whatever, you're, you're putting your kids under the care of somebody else. And uh, at least for me, I remember when I was a kid and my parents would do that, whether it was a coach or a, or a, we didn't really have babysitters, but, or a relative or what have you, they would always tell me, listen, uh, for the duration of time, this person is, is, is watching after you. They're, they're your parent. Okay. You, you listen to them like you would listen to me. And you want to be able to, you have to be able to say that to, to a kid. Because you can't drop a kid off to be cared for, especially in a public school environment, for six, seven hours a day, five days a week, nine months a year for 13 years, 12 years, 14 years, whatever it is now, if you, if you factor in pre-K and pre-pre-K and pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-K. But, um, uh, so, so you have to be, you can't do that and then tell your kid, hey, don't listen to them. They have no authority over you. They aren't your parent. They have no authority. Don't listen to them. You can't say that because then you have disaster. And, 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 and some parents do essentially say that to their kids, and it's disastrous. So you want to be able to say, listen to them. Okay, I mean, I'm your parent, but I am, 
I am giving that, uh, I am delegating that responsibility to this individual or these adults or this adult for this period of time. Listen to them. They're in charge. You want to be able to say that, but you have to be able to trust the person you're putting your child under. Or you have to be able to trust the system it's called, the child will be under. And in this case, you cannot trust the system. So you would have to say, and you never want to have to say this, but you would have to say to your, to your child, uh, listen, there are some rules and things you're going to be told by this adult who we've entrusted with your care. There, there are some things that uh, he or she is going to tell you that you should not listen to. Don't listen to it. Other things you should, but something, and then it's very confusing then. But you have to tell your, your kid that. Your kid comes home and says, hey, I spent all day working on something today in school. And you ask, well, what was it? It's, oh, I was, I was told under threat of force not to say anything. Do you just back off at that point and say, okay, well, I respect that. Absolutely not. You say, no, you're going to tell me what it was. Now you're absolutely going to tell me what it was because you're my child and I need to know this and, I'm, and, and I need to protect you. But this is standardized testing. It, it, it cannot function if not under the veil of secrecy. And it's one of those things, standardized, standardized testing. It's like the bowl system in college football before they sort of kind of adopted a playoff system. But they adopted a playoff system with like four teams. You know, after all this time, they unveiled their playoff system and it's four teams. It's, 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 uh, it's two games and then a championship. It's totally lame. But anyway, um, with the bowl system, everyone, I mean, seemingly everyone hated it. Universal agreement, it seems like, that it's bad. Just like that with standardized testing. Seems to be universal agreement. If you want everyone in the room to agree with you, just, just say, hey, standardized testing sucks, and they'll all agree. But yet it continues. It continues because it's a system, and these are tests created by and administered by people, but within the context of and at the behest of a bureaucracy, and because of that, there's no accountability. The bureaucracy becomes like this organism unto itself it's this hideous mass this blob that just moves and twitches and consumes and slithers along on its own and everyone is a victim to it even the bureaucrats themselves who pretend to be victims to it and that's a lie of course but uh but that's the impression that we get and the, the thing about standardized testing we all we all know the objections Teachers teach to the test. Some kids aren't good at testing. Too much is hinged on the success of these tests. Emphasizes memorization and regurgitation. All of that is true. But even if you know this, like, like I've known it ever since I was a kid, it's still probably worst of all messes with your concept of intelligence and education. It makes you think that education is something that can be quantified on a piece of paper and measured and ranked. And it took me a long time to realize how fatally flawed that idea uh, is. Of course, I say everyone agrees that standardized testing is bad, but I guess not everyone. I did get a few uh, people on Facebook that had no ill feelings towards standardized testing. For instance, Melissa wrote and says, I don't think standardized testing is bad. We need to get some kind of idea where our kids stand to see how effective the teachers are teaching and to be able to compare students year to year to see where they improve. Uh, they are very helpful. Standardized testing is only harmful when teachers or schools take those tests to be law. 
kids go up and down and really only parents and the child's teacher can have an idea uh, about if they're really progressing. Those tests shouldn't be written in stone and they shouldn't be banned. You know, I hear this kind of thing a lot, not just when it comes to standardized testing, but with so, with so many issues, what Melissa's trying to do here, and I don't mean to pick on her. But what she's trying to do, you, you see what she says there. She says, look, um, because she doesn't want to, and, and I think uh, often we do this, when, when there's something that's sort of taken for granted in our system, especially when it comes to our kids, something that, that's happening with our kids, and uh, it's sort of taken for granted, and we don't want to question it fundamentally. So instead we say, eh, it's not really bad per se, it's just misapplied or overused or whatever. Uh, so we shouldn't get rid of it, but at the same time, maybe we should do it less or to a lesser degree or whatever. And so we try to find this middle ground rather than just thinking, well, maybe there is something fatally flawed right down to its core, right down to the root of it. You see what Melissa said there? She says those tests, the standardized tests, shouldn't be written in stone, but they shouldn't be banned either. Yet the, the problem is that by definition, they're written in stone. That's why they're standardized tests. You say, oh, we should have standardized tests, but teachers shouldn't teach to it, and it shouldn't be overemphasized. But that's, the, that's what a standardized test is. If it was just a test that you take, but uh, your whole, you know, there's not much hinged on it, and still the individual assessment of a teacher and a parent is, is weighted more, more heavily, and, uh, and you don't spend all year teaching to it, and it's just something that you take, and it's not a big deal. I mean, if, it was, if that's what a standardized test was, then it would just be a test. It would be more like a, just a quiz that you get on a normal day. We wouldn't even be talking about it, would we? But I think we can go even deeper. Because Melissa's starting from the premise that, um, okay, we need to get an idea of where these kids stand, quote-unquote. We have to be able to compare them from year to year. And although she didn't say this, I assume compare them to other kids as well to get an idea of where, they, where they're ranked. And that's how you know where they stand, right? And it's hard to look at that concept because it's so ingrained in us. This is what I'm talking about, that even as someone who has hated standardized testing for a long time, uh, and this concept was still ingrained in me until sort of recently when, when I actually looked at it and said, well, maybe there's something wrong with this fundamentally, that uh, do we need to be able to rank a kid and measure the kid every step of the way during the process of education? Do we need to be able to do that? Should we do that? Is it possible to do that? And I get it. With our, with our current educational construct, this kind of uh, industrialized educational mechanism where we stuff a bunch of kids into the system and we put them on a conveyor belt and we move them through the process, and then at the end of it, we have to make sure that we have a product that works, right, and that can be applied to these different jobs and, in different, and be plugged into different holes in society. That's the way we approach education right now. So, yes, in that sense, just like in a factory, you have to have ways to measure and test the product as it goes along to make sure there aren't any defects. And so if we're approaching education like that, then yes. And so if you're telling me that there has to be a way to take a mass of kids and measure them and rank them and quantify them every step along the process of education, an education process that lasts exactly 12 or 13 years before four or five to maybe six, seven or eight years of college, and then that's it. If that is the 
system, if that has to be the system, then yes, in that case, I guess standardized testing is rather unavoidable. Just like you have, a, you have to have a standard test by which to uh, decide if the iPhone you just made in the factory can go to market or the underpants or the, the uh, office chair or whatever other product, whatever other commodity. So if kids have to be commodities in the education system, then yes, standardized testing is inevitable. But what I'm saying is we could pull ourselves back from that and question that premise. And when we question that premise, I know we're left looking at this and thinking, well, I mean, if we don't treat education like this, then it's like our entire society would have to change. Our entire society is built around this. That kids are stuffed into the system, moved along in mass, measured and ranked along the way, that extracted from the system and supplanted into these different places in society to fill a role and to, quote, use the education to do something uh, 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 useful, right? If we really start to question that, well, now we're on dangerous ground because you uproot that or upend that and our entire culture changes. Everything changes. But what I'm saying is that everything should change because when you look at it, Here's the reality of it. Our culture, not just with education, but with everything, is built on a flawed premise. And so my obsession, especially recently, is to go right to the premise. I don't care about anything else. I'm going right to the premise. See, I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore about about addressing the symptoms, uh, about making the flawed premise kind of work in a way. I don't care about that anymore. I want to go right to the premise, right to the beginning. I want to question everything at its foundation, and we have to be willing to do that. Because if we're not, then then none of this really will change. None of this can change if we're not willing to do that. But I, I think this is an interesting enough topic that we could stretch this into another podcast and continue this conversation, which we will in fact, and uh, actually this weekend I will be at the Great Homeschool Convention on uh, in, in Cincinnati. And go to greathomeschoolconventions.com and I'm going to be there and we'll sort of be talking about this as a matter of fact uh, there. So maybe I'll see you there. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. Uh, Kuche Salus, Godspeed. <laughs>